you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, for those who don't know how that goes. Uh, 11 o'clock, welcome. Uh, It is great to be here with you. I feel like you're my people this morning. The 9amers, they're like young, kids, energy. And yesterday I had a Bucks party. And so I'm feeling weaker than I am strong. I'm, pray- I'm, I'm preaching on strength and weakness. It's not like there was alcohol consumed or anything. I was, just, I was at a Bucks party with 20-year-olds. And 20-year-olds, they're just, yeah, they're like so energetic. I had to wrestle for every single meal I had. And I had to like play frisbee golf and go-kart. And so I'm feeling tight. Uh, but I know some of you might be too. So let's pray as we open God's word and engage with his scripture. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this morning. As we approach your word now, might you give us hearts to receive its wisdom and minds to change our actions, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. Amen. Uh, For those who are new or visiting or who I haven't met, uh, I didn't introduce myself at the top. My name is Pat, and I have the pleasure of being one of the pastors here at City on the Hill. And today you've joined us in the second last week of the book of 2 Corinthians. And That is a very, very confusing time to come into our church and hear a sermon because last week uh, Nick actually started this passage and then we're just getting straight back into this strange argument that Paul is making in the letter of 2 Corinthians. But you're in luck because I'm going to kind of recap the book for us because especially at this stage of the series, you can kind of be a bit confused about, well, where are we? What has actually happened in this letter? What are we talking about again? Like, what, what is Corinthians? So 2 Corinthians, to recap, is a letter written to a church which is in Greece 2,000 years ago. 
Uh, they are a church much like ourselves in the, in the city of Corinth. It's known for sport. It's known for the mo- being the most livable city. It might be slowly slipping down the scale like we are. Uh, but it's, it's a kind of full of stoic philosophy and these, and these people who are boasting and, and amazing orators. And, and it's an incredible place to be. It's full of culture and art and love and light. But what we see is that there's a problem in the church. Paul is addressing uh, a problem that they have these kind of teachers who are infiltrating the church and they're, they're teaching a bit of a, a gospel plus something else. So they're going against and they're adding to the gospel uh, that Paul himself has come to preach. And now, so Paul is the author of this letter and he spent most of the letter defending himself against the lies that the super apostles are telling about him. And so here we land in chapter 11. And um, we're going to go into the start of chapter 12, but I'm going to go backwards into chapter 11 so we can kind of set the scene for where we are. So today we're going to look at Paul's final arguments against the uh, so-called super apostles that he likes to call them in three sections. We're going to look at backwards boasting, we're going to look at the vision and the thorn, and then we're going to look at the sufficiency of grace. So let's get into our first one, the backwards boaster. And our reading was from chapter 12, but if you want to turn back in your Bibles with me to chapter 11, verse 16, it says this, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I might boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. So Paul stoops to the level of his critics and he can barely hold himself here. We see, saw that last week he's kind of, okay, I'll play your game, but I'm going to keep on telling you that I'm being a bit of a fool. I'm being a bit of an idiot. And here's Paul saying, okay, it's not, he's not the ideal Christian way of doing things. I wouldn't normally engage like this, uh, but I'm going to somewhat enter your game, but I'm going to do it with a twist. I'm not going to fully boast like you think I want to. Now, you need to remember this. The uh, super apostles, they're accusing Paul of not having three things. They're saying he can't be an apostle of God because he's always suffering and he's always getting hurt. If someone was in God's favour, that wouldn't be the case. Secondly, he can't be an apostle because he doesn't have credentials or skills like we do. That means he can't be anointed by God. He can't be an apostle, thirdly, because he doesn't boast of these amazing experiences of God like we are always boasting to you. All these things are discrediting discrediting him. And they're saying, hey, how can you trust this loser Paul? How can you trust him? Like, we are the world's biggest influencers. We have, like, Instagram accounts followed by millions of people. We're constantly curating our content. We're, like, on the forefront of what's new and what's hip and what's happening. We're always telling you the latest and greatest thing. Paul hasn't signed in in, like, a month. And whenever he signs in, it's like a weird picture of his cat, and he just keeps on going on about the same gospel of grace. It's boring. It's old. Let's get over it. You see, he's hardly the influencer that some in the church want him to be. And these super apostles, these fancy people with fancy rhetoric, with epic stories and skills and followings, they're saying, hey, come and follow us. But Paul sees these guys for who they really are. He sees them as crooks. And he says in verse 19, For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes a slave of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Now let's pause here. 
because if you haven't picked it up, this is shots fired. Okay, this is shots fired by Paul to the super apostles. Paul is saying the people who you've let into the church are taking advantage of you. They're putting themselves above you. They're elevating their spiritual walk above yours. They are making themselves superior to make you feel inferior. You're even letting them hit you in the face. And the following section is where the comedy of Paul really starts going. Okay. To be honest, I hesitate to use this illustration uh, just because it's going to be obvious when I start to use it uh, because it's going to say a bit about me. But hands up if you've seen the movie Eight Mile. Yeah, come on, go on, come on, put them up. Have you have you seen the Eminem Eight movie, movie Eight Mile? Okay, there's a couple of proper degenerates in the crowd. Um, the movie Eight Mile is the biopic of Eminem. Okay, it's it's like his life story. And I'm going to recap it for you. And this has never been done at church, probably. Um, but basically, the opening scene is you've got, you've got Eminem and he's like in this rap battle. And for those who don't know what a rap battle is, it's where like two rappers will stand on stage, they'll have a backing track and they'll diss each other. And they'll just keep on rapping at the other person. They've got like a minute to say, this is why I think you're a loser and why I'm cool and why I should win. And the rest of the crowd's like, yeah! And they get on board with them. And then they like, uh, and then that, the, the noise of the crowd helps the person to win. And then they, they go on to be the next greatest rapper in the first scene of Eminem, 8 Mile. Eminem, he chokes. He doesn't have anything to say. This guy just like floors him for being like this dweeby white rapper who's like, you know, playing where he shouldn't. And the whole movie, it goes on to like show the flaws. I'm getting a couple of nods and amens. People are like, they know where this is going. And, and in the whole movie, you see like, oh, this guy, he's, he's a real loser. He's like, you know, he, his, wife, his girlfriend's cheating on him and his mates are being shot and he's like living in, a, in poverty. And then it gets to the last scene and it's the final boss. He's like, he's face to face with this, 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 this guy who's been like, he's, you know, I don't know, bad guy. And, uh, and he gets there and then all of a sudden, Everybody says, mate, what are you going to say? He's got so much dirt on you. How are you going to possibly win this rap battle? And Eminem has this moment. He thinks, what did Paul do in 2 Corinthians? <laughs> and he goes, I know what Paul did. And what he does is just, he goes through and he tells his opponent all the stuff that's happened in his life. He says, yeah, I'm poor. Yeah, my girlfriend did cheat on me. Yeah, I do live with my mum in my 30s and I do live below the poverty line. And then he hands in the mic and says, now you go and tell these people something they don't know about me. And it's like this, wow, moment. Because he's used this brilliant tactic that Paul uses here. Paul's saying, you want me to boast like an idiot? I'll play your game. You keep on telling people that uh, suffering isn't, like you, you keep on telling people about the suffering, the hardship that I've had? Hold my beer. You don't know the half of it. I'm going to tell you about every moment of suffering I have. I am a mess. Let me show you how I do it. So he highlights, verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Now the punishment of 40 lashes less one is lashes, two-thirds of them are on your back, the final third is on your chest, and it's minus one to absolve the person who is doing the lashing lest you die. Okay, so people died during this. It's a, it's a whip made of three cords, and it was reserved for people who went against the teaching of the synagogue. And here's Paul saying, yeah, I got lashed five times. It was immense suffering. 
He goes on. Three times I was beaten with rods. Now, lashings were reserved for in the synagogue, but the rods were like the, the, the state, the capital punishment. All right? This was delivered by the Roman authorities. So he's saying, yes, I was, beaten, uh, I was whipped in the synagogues and I was beaten by the Romans. And, and Paul could actually use his status to get out of these floggings, but at times he didn't just so he could show other Jews, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm Jewish. He goes on. Once I was stoned. And our stoning was a way that people were actually executed back in the day. And so it wasn't after a fair trial or anything that Paul was stoned. Rather, it was like this angry mob in Lystra in Acts 16 just blew up. They all stoned him and he ended up, they thought he was dead. So they dumped his body outside the city. But by a miracle, he stood up, walked away and got away with it. So he's been whipped by the religious elite. He's been uh, beaten with rods by the state. He's been stoned by the mob but he continues. He says, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and day I was adrift at sea. You see, being shipwrecked was kind of probably a normal part of, uh, of sea travel, but to have it three times, and we know that he was actually shipwrecked another two times after this, was like, it showed that you were cursed. He spent a night and a day floating in the abyss. Now, like, laps at the Chadson pool wasn't a thing that Paul did. He didn't know how to swim. No one knew how to swim because the sea was untamable. The sea was chaos. The sea was judgment. You see, the sea was where you went to be judged by the gods. You see what Paul's doing here? He continues, 26, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Let me summarize what Paul is saying for you. Paul didn't feel safe when he was preaching to the Jews. He didn't feel safe from the Roman authorities. He didn't feel safe from the mobs in the cities when he was preaching to the Gentiles. He didn't feel safe while he was traveling through nature. He didn't feel safe when he was at church. The false teachers are at his church. They're in his building. They're in his space. Such is the physical sufferings of Paul. You see this fantastic argument that Paul has laid out here. He said, you want me to mock, you want to mock me for my sufferings? Here is all the ammo. Here is everything I've got. My life is unbelievably hard. You don't even know the half of it. But to cap it all off, here's this final paragraph. He kind of slips in there. It's this weird story about him being lowed, lowered down in a basket. And we can kind of skip over it and think, oh, that's a weird ending. But have a look at this. There's this crown in the ancient world called the Cornana, sorry, the Corna Moralis. I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong. Now, this award is like the Victorian Cross of our day. Okay, the Victorian Cross is awarded to the most brave soldiers. Uh, this crown, is it, you can see, uh, I think it's on the right, uh, you're right, uh, it, it's, it's made of a walled city. Okay? So the idea behind this crown is that uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world, you're often battling fortified walled cities. That, a wall was a city's biggest defence. So this crown went to the bravest soldier, the first over the wall. And now this might seem like a, sound like a simple thing to do, but it was actually an incredible hard, incredibly hard thing to do because these giant ladders would be put up against the walls. And what the opposition would do is just simply push them down when you're on top of them and you're dead. Or you get halfway up it and they get a pot of boiling water or oil and they tip it down and you're dead. 
And not to mention, when you actually got to the top of the ladder, you jump the wall, and what are you faced with? Like a five-on-one hand-to-hand combat battle. Most of these crowns were given to the most brave people. A lot of them were dead. But if you got one of these crowns and you were alive, it was riches forever. You were known as the bravest person. What, what is Paul telling us here? He's saying, I wasn't the first over the wall. I was the first out of the wall. I was a coward. I ran away. Not only was he suffering a, a suffering mess, but when it comes to bravery, he wasn't the first over the wall. He was the first out of the wall. Imagine the embarrassment. Imagine the humiliation that Paul would have been feeling after he goes from being this Pharisee of the highest order to meeting Jesus and having his life flipped upside down and then being lowered in a fish basket in the middle of the night like a common coward, like a common crook. If the Corinthians had any cultural respect for him still remaining, they absolutely didn't now after they hear this. But what Paul is doing, he's actually setting the scene for what he's about to go into. So he's about to swap from being funny and making his opponent's arguments against him stronger than they were in the first place to this section of quite serious theology, this level of of, of theology and story more akin to what the church was after. So let's now turn and look at our second point as we look at the vision. Please read, read with me from where our Bible reading was in the start of chapter 12. He says this, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told with which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Mega confusing passage. But you've got to remember this. The Stoic teachers are trying to infiltrate and influence the church in Corinth, and they want a good resume of public speaking prowess. They want clean references, a life devoid of suffering to show God's favor, but perhaps most of all, they want convincing, mind-blowing, real experiences of God. They would have been telling stories that made they're more superior to those around them in the church. They would have been saying, I went to heaven, I saw the face of God and he spoke to me and no one else. I went and had such and such experience. I heard this, I saw that. They would have delighted in the up-to-date testimony. You know that moment when you, hey, you say to someone, hey, what's God been up to in your life in the last couple of weeks? And they say, oh, Actually, it's been amazing. Like, you know, that boss I was really struggling with? By God's grace, he's like giving me a, a new heart of love to that person. You go, oh, that's awesome. And that, and that is how grace works. But these people would have said, I've seen another epic picture of God that you haven't seen. Oh, he has told me things that he's, he's, he's confided in me that I must now tell you. You see how it was like a, a boasting in their experience. And sometimes this lands for us. We can so long for an experience of God. We can so want something else 
to convince us that he's real, that he's here, that he's active, that we can go searching and looking and clinging to people who boast in these experiences. They still exist today. They write lots and lots of books. And this is something that happens with us today. It's something that happens with the Corinthians. But let's walk through Paul's boast. Let's walk through Paul's vision and experience. What do we notice about Paul's testimony? First, he says, I know a man. I know a man. Although it becomes clear later in the passage that he is indeed the man in the story, he still holds back from saying that this is what happened to him specifically. He doesn't want to be the hero of his own story lest Jesus not be getting the glory. And he continues, who? 14 years ago. So not only does he hide his identity in it, it's something that happened ages ago. You can imagine that, you know, they're wanting an up-to-date testimony. He's like, okay, this happened a long time ago. And thirdly, what happened? We know that someone saw paradise, but there is significant lack of detail that is almost laughable. There is enough to credit Paul, but he doesn't say if it was impersonal in the spirit or what he heard. You can imagine all these people, they gather around to hear this experience of Paul and they're saying, okay, come on, Paul, tell us what was it like? And, he, and they have to like draw it out of him. He says, okay, it was cool, it was ages ago, and I, don't, I can't really talk about it because it's not the point of it. You see, he's humble about even having the vision. He's talking about something that happened long ago and he hides the details about it. And I think all of this is really deliberate by Paul. Paul is flying in the face of the opposition that he's facing in Corinth. He is flying in the face of the way that they do it. They want stories and he is desperately trying to protect the church from a bunch of people who are saying, Jesus plus amazing experience. And he's not saying that visions and revelations don't happen. They do happen and they've happened to Paul. And this likely happened on the road to Damascus, which was about 14 years ago. A wonderful, uplifting spiritual state exists. That does it, it does occur for people in the church from time to time. They can be magnificent gifts from God to the church, marvelously encouraging, a real taste of paradise itself. But they are not, here's the key thing, they are not given to people in order to make those people more special than anybody else in the church. And if those people are using those visions, those experiences, to put themselves above other people in the church, then they're probably missing the point of the experience. And for Paul, he recognises that this experience probably did have the opportunity to get ahead of him, and he can look back to something that helps that has been happening for the last 14 years in his life as he starts to talk about the thorn in his flesh. Let's keep on reading from verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, built up because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. See, there is no end of speculation as to what happened in the vision and there is no end of speculation as to what this thorn was that is in Paul's flesh. We have no idea what it was in real life. Uh, It's most likely... We can surmise it's most likely a physical ailment that probably has something to do with his eyesight, and we get that from Galatians. Maybe he was a guy going blind, but it could have been a recurring persecution. It could have been a literal thorn in his literal flesh. That's probably the least likely of the options. But to be honest, we don't know. But Paul certainly did. This drove him to complete agony. 
It felt like Satan was twisting a razor-sharp thorn into his side. Paul suffered so much from this that he pleaded with the Lord on multiple occasions to take it away from him, believing that God could grant his request. But however, earnest prayer wouldn't be enough this time. Paul needed to endure this pain-inducing, weakness-exposing, prayer-invoking thorn for this time. But Paul's request wasn't altogether rejected, was it? Because instead of relieving the pain, the Lord promises grace. The thorn is going to deepen his dependence on God, and that grace would keep, on, keep him from giving up on this God who said no to his prayer. For some of us, this is going to be a really, really hard word, okay? And this is why. There are going to be circumstances in this room that we're going to be asking, why and how has God, can God possibly use this experience that I'm having for His good? Why and how could this possibly be for His good? But look at how Paul has already pastorally cared for us so far before we get too much further. Do you struggle with a physical ailment? So did Paul. Do you struggle with mental ailments? So did Paul. Do you struggle from attacks of work, from the government, from your friends, from people inside and outside your community, from people who have invested your time and energy into, from those you love, from internal and external threats? Well, so did Paul. He has suffered with you. See, I can have this image of Paul as like this slick guy who's like written lots of letters, who controls every room that he comes into, but no, he was this, had this insanely hard, insanely lonely life of suffering deeper than anybody I've ever heard of. Paul was suffered so badly, and this thorn was just yet another thorn in such a long list of injuries. So where does he get this confidence? Where does he get this resolve? Where did he get his faith, his faith to boast? He gets it in grace. So let's turn as we look at our final heading of his argument in the sufficiency of grace. He said, but he said to me, in from verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, the opponents are saying, Paul, your sufferings are proof that God doesn't love you. And Paul is saying, my sufferings are an opportunity to show the power of God. Because Paul understands something that the Corinthian super apostles don't. That God's power and human power are not the same thing. And often the second has to be knocked out for the first to work altogether and shine through and glorify God. This is a really hard concept to handle sometimes, but we're reading it right here. God can and does take away suffering. He can and does. But sometimes he doesn't intervene in the schemes of the devil for another reason. This is a really, really hard word. Because it's one of the biggest questions of our faith. How could God allow me to suffer like this? Think of, think of your 
biggest point of suffering right now? Just take a minute. What is the thing that makes you think, how can God allow me to suffer like this? Doesn't he know how I feel right now? How could, good, how could a good God allow this to happen to me? Every one of us have asked this question. And here's the answer. My grace is sufficient for you. Let's unpack that. Church, do we know what grace is? It's one of those things that maybe you've been at church your whole life and the penny still hasn't dropped. Maybe you used to know what it is uh, and maybe now you're thinking, I would love to be reminded of it again. And maybe this is your first time in church and you're thinking, hold on, I've never heard this term grace. Well, we're going to unpack it a bit and dive into it because it is the first point of all pastoral care. When I start doubting, when I start hurting, when I start struggling, the grace of God is the first thing that I think about. The first thing. So let's get into it. We're going to look at it from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles, you can if you want. But I find it a really helpful place to read about grace. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, this is another letter, Ephesians, uh, from Paul to a church, and he's unpacking the concept of grace and boasting again. But the key words here that we're going to define are grace and faith. And let me explain what they mean. See, grace is a, a word that many of us use, but we don't exactly know what it means. We're a bit unsure, but Basically, it means free gift. And specifically in this context, it means the gift of God's undeserved love. Something that you get even though you don't deserve it. And faith is a word that many of us have heard, but it can sometimes be unhelpful because we kind of think of it like crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. But faith is confidence and trust. You have faith in your car, you have faith in the seat which is in your car that when you get in it, it's going to hold you. You have faith in your car that when you put your foot on the accelerator, it's going to drive. In this context, it means trusting in Jesus for your salvation and not yourself. And what's it all mean? We're being told in Ephesians that you can be saved, go to heaven by trusting in God's undeserved gifts of love. All God, not you. And there is no way you can boast in it because it's a free gift from him. And perhaps like if you're one of those people who's visiting this church for the first time and that's very different to how you previously understood Christianity. It might even sound too good to be true, but let's, let's have a look if it is too good to be true. There's this section of Luke, it's really famous, it's the thief on a cross. Because when Jesus was killed, he was crucified with two other men on either side of him. Now we don't know much about them, but the Romans didn't crucify just anyone. So we know that these guys are serious criminals. They're like terrorists or murderers or something like that. And when the crucifixion started, both these men, as along with all the crowds, are mocking Jesus and scorning Jesus. But then all of a sudden something happened. One of them starts to have a change of perspective. One of the criminals who, uh, in Luke 23, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, the other criminal, saying, do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our debts. But this man, talking about Jesus, has done nothing wrong. 
And the criminal said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now let's pause here. What do you think Jesus is going to say next? Remembering that this guy is a criminal. He's a rebel. He has done something bad enough to be executed. We know that he hasn't been a follower of Jesus prior to this. He's never been a part of a church. He's never been to a Bible study. He's never prayed with anybody. And what he said didn't seem that spiritually profound. He just said, this man is the Lord. So surely, if anyone has to be cancelled out of God's kingdom, surely if anybody's not getting into heaven, it's this guy right here. It's what this man deserves is for Jesus to completely reject him. But what is Jesus' response? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What this man deserves is punishment, but Jesus gives him what he doesn't deserve. He gives him grace. He promises him salvation. Grace is very hard for us in this room to understand because it's just not the way that we naturally operate, right? We naturally want to condemn people and punish people. And when we give a gift, we usually give it to someone who deserves it or someone we love. But think of it this way. Imagine that you get home from church today and you catch someone halfway through robbing your entire house. They're like taking your stuff and, and you catch them and rightly so, you're like, oh, this person deserves to be punished. So you want to you call the police and have them arrested. But imagine that out of your love for them, compelled by your love for them, you just grab a bag and you just start filling it up with all your most treasured possessions. Oh, you missed a couple of bits. Hey, here, have it. Oh, hold on a second. Let's even set up a direct bank transfer and I can like just keep on transferring you money out of my account. You can just keep on robbing me forever. No. We wouldn't do that. We'd never do that because this person isn't a good fa- person. In fact, they have been planning for how to rob you for a little while. They deserve punishment, but because you love them, you show them grace. Now, it's a, it's a bit of a silly analogy, but let's turn up the heat on it. Let's imagine that this person isn't just a thief, but they're a murderer. You get home and the person who you love most in your life is dead on the floor. And you don't just welcome the person, but you offer them a seat at your table. You offer them to move in with you. You start to adopt them as your family. You see, Jesus gives this criminal grace, undeserved love. He promises the man eternal life, not because he's been good, but even though he hasn't been good. All the man needs to do is accept it, to trust Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And what about for us? See, the consequences for this are life transforming. Grace changes everything. It totally shakes up our world, how we work, how we rest, how we play, how we love, how we suffer, all changes when grace sinks in. Because grace means that you don't have to earn your way to heaven by who you are and what you do. You get to go to heaven by trusting in Jesus and what he has done for you. Grace means that God loves you because he loves you. It means no matter what you've done or who you've been, 
He loves you. Grace means that you don't have to get right with God by doing good. You can get right by God by just accepting His goodness. He is offering you a way out of what you deserve because He loves you. And grace means that we can be saved. And not because of any good that we've done, but despite the bad things that we've done. Grace means that we can be sure of eternal life because Jesus promises that if you turn to Him and trust Him for this life and the next, you'll be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. Eternal life, new today and forever, is guaranteed by His death and resurrection. See, grace means that when we suffer, and we will suffer, we can turn to God and cling to God in comfort because He has already displayed how trustworthy He is. Now, we looked at how much Paul suffered, but equally, Jesus suffered just as much. But unlike Paul, Hebrews 4.14 tells us that Jesus was even tempted like us in every single way. So not only does he know our experience of physical suffering, but also our internal battles against our own selves. See, whatever you are going through, Christ knows how it feels. Now look at me. I'm going to say that again. Whatever you are going through, Christ knows exactly how it feels. Our church forgets this all the time. He knows how you feel. Do you see why grace is sufficient? What more could we want than that? When we're in the depths of despair, when we're feeling lonely in the most livable city in the world, what does grace tell you? It tells you the same thing it told Paul. It tells you the same thing it told the Corinthians. It tells you the message hasn't changed. It tells you that Jesus loves you so much, church. You need to know this. Jesus loves you so much. Like, I can't articulate it enough how much that man loves you. So why has this thorn stayed in the flesh of Paul? Or more personally, why has God allowed me to suffer like this? The full and honest answer, we might not ever know this, this side of heaven. But because of grace, we can say these three things. It can't be because he doesn't love us. It can't be because he doesn't know what it feels like. And it can't be because he doesn't care. So it has to be something else. Because on the cross, he's proven that he does love us. He has proven that he knows what it feels like. And he's proven that he cares. So our suffering must be for something else. When we look at Jesus, we can look at what he accomplished and say, you are a God I trust. You are a God I'm going to trust that you will get me through this suffering. Right? That is the application of this sermon, to love and trust Jesus, like he has loved you. Let's pray. God, our hearts, are, our hearts are so hard. We so often do not uh, understand or comprehend grace. Our Lord, it is one of those things that uh, until it penetrates us, it doesn't make sense. 
So Father, I pray for every single person in this room right now, especially those for who grace is hitting their heart for the first time. Might you help us to see how much you love us, what you have done for us, how you have supported us and died for us, and how that in our sufferings, you continue to be with us. That in our weakness, we can display your love. That though those around us might look at our life circumstance, they might look at what's going on, how we got that diagnosis or how we lost that family member and they might say, you should be more angry. But we as a church can have confidence because of the grace of God. That we know that this isn't for nothing. And the suffering, the pain, the devil's schemes in the world, they have been ended. And one day, Father, we hope, we pray, we long for, we wait for the day that Jesus comes again and we have no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. Lord, until that day, we wait and trust with faith. Lord, please increase our faith, deepen our faith. Have us to encourage one another in our walks. Lord, please increase our knowledge of you by your grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.